No. Just me. What do you want from me? <laughs> I don't know, Jesse. You think you can turn back time? Answer me! No. Do you think you can bring the dead back to life? No. No! No! I didn't fucking think so. No! 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 Why are you screaming? I haven't even caught you yet. <laughs> Don't worry, Jackie Earl Haley. In my dreams, it's still the same. Don't watch this. Hello everyone, welcome back to Don't Watch This Film, the podcast where we watch some of the worst horror movies in history so that you don't have to. I changed it up. My name is W. Adam Clark. My name is Tia, and oh, we're going back to a classic. A classic of 2010. Wait, or is it 1984? I huh. mean, what is time anymore? We've, we've gone through 2020 at this point. Time is irrelevant and lunchtime doubly so. So today we are discussing the... Thankfully only, because this has not always been the case during Reboot Month, and potential spoiler, don't think it'll be the case for the last episode of Reboot Month, but that's a whole other story. Yeah, so the reason why we're doing this movie this week, <laughs> and not the end week, is this is the movie that was chosen by our patrons. Normally we do our Patreon movie the end of the month, but we're going to need some more time to prep for the movie that we wanted to do this week because it's another one of those let's watch five movies to discuss one movie movie. However, the podcast will probably not be an hour and a half long on that one. So <laughs> we switched them around so we have more time to work on it. So this is our Patreon poll reboot film, Nightmare on Elm Street, the most of terrifying which... of all tree-named streets. <laughs> Of which there were only two films we had to consider for this. Only two, as opposed to I lost count of how many we needed to for House of Wax. Well, ironically, I'm going to make an argument that you that one of the problems with this movie was that you need to consider six. But it's only it's a it's a very passing argument, and we can get right through it. And I don't have to synopsize six movies to do it. I just have to go a this, b that, c this other thing, and then it's on. So we'll be fine when we get there. So we're not making a habit of two hour podcasts yet. No, no, and not even yet. Just no. No two-hour podcast. No. If y'all have listened to last week's episode, it was our 20th episode. Yay! We got to 20 episodes! But Yay. you might want to for some context. If you're going to strap in, it goes for a while. We needed to spend one hour just explaining the movie before we got to talking about the movie. Although I kind of almost want to do a James Cameron Films podcast and have the podcast be five hours long. Oh, God. Bring a blanket and a fucking oh, sack sorry. lunch. That's not fair. A James Cameron podcast should be three hours long. Peter Jackson's podcast should be five hours. <laughs> no, Peter Jackson's podcast should be 90 minutes long, but also have a director's cut available that's three and a half hours long. Don't give us ideas. If we could pull that off. The, the five-hour podcast would be the Snyder podcast. So let's go ahead and explain to the audience what You had to remember what movie we were talking about, didn't you? You had to look it up. I saw it. They're like, what are we We've doing? Been... Where, are, where are my socks? What are, what's have, going on? <laughs> we've been talking about a lot of movies lately <laughs> and today. 
Uh, we do have a pre-podcast conversation that usually goes on way longer than it should, and we discuss movies there too. So yes, I'm also at the end of my first week of or my second week of training for my new job. My brain is all over the shop. I'm not apologizing. Congratulations I'm on making it through two weeks of training, by the way. Thank you. Okay, so A Nightmare on Elm Street 2010. The plot is The Nightmare of Elm Street 1984. What are the numbers? <laughs> okay. All right, all right, all right. So, in case you didn't catch the remake, because apparently people did, because this film made money, but it didn't. It didn't have legs. There were there was no forward momentum. Okay, but in case you didn't happen to see it, I mean, the to movie be fair, opened... it is now. You know, ten years later, there's a lot of people that won't have seen this movie because. They weren't watching movies 10 years ago or whatever, and it didn't have legs, so nobody's watched it since. Eh, that's true. Do you think it would have made more money and had more forward momentum if it had more legs? I mean, oh, wait, maybe this two claws. Maybe two claws. <laughs> if he had two claws, it would have had more momentum. But then it would have been a Wolverine ripoff. <sighs> a horror Wolverine ripoff. Okay, there's a movie I want. Basically Bright Sun. Basically Bright Sun, but the Wolverine verse. So... <clears throat> The movie opens with a high schooler named Dean falling asleep at a diner table. As he has a dream, a burned man wearing a bladed glove attacks him and cuts his throat, while Dean's friends Chris and Nancy see him in the real world cutting his own throat. At the funeral, Chris sees a photograph of a group of kids, including herself and Dean, but can't remember knowing Dean before high school. The photograph happens to be around preschool age of herself, Dean, a bunch of kids they go to school with, no memory of it. Chris starts dreaming about the same burned man from Dean's dream without knowing it later that evening and asks her ex, Jesse, to come over. In her sleep, Chris is brutally killed and Jesse runs to Nancy's house to hide as he now is covered in his ex-girlfriend's blood. During the talk with Nancy, Jesse comes to realize that their entire group has been dreaming about the same man, Freddy Krueger. Jesse is arrested because your girlfriend's blood on you is not good optics for you saying, I didn't kill her, and ends up being murdered by Krueger while in his jail cell. While you're in the house without permission, while you've touched the murder device, yeah, like, there's just a whole lot of that just, just doesn't bode well for you sorry people have a random people know that there's been a falling out between you two you were jealous of her new boyfriend who was just murdered 12 hours prior i kind of understand why that he got arrested and you had just been seen at the scene of that crime leaving at the same time as the murder so potentially you're tied into both arguably but you got a real good lawyer i'm just saying as her friends are dying nancy starts exploring all of their connections to each other None of them can remember anything about the others before their teen years, despite mounting evidence that they knew each other as children. Nancy's mother, Gwen, reluctantly tells Nancy and her boyfriend, Quentin, that the group being killed did go to the same preschool. During their time there, the seemingly affable groundskeeper, Fred, was accused of molesting the children. Gwen tells them that Nancy was Fred's favorite, and Nancy came home one day to tell her mother what Fred did to her in a secret location on the preschool property. Gwen tells them that she informed the other parents, but that Fred escaped before he could be arrested and that's why all the parents tried to suppress hide otherwise block out the memories for their kids to try to have them grow up some semblance of normal that's not exactly the sort of thing you want on your kid's mind i kind of understand where she's coming from after jesse is killed quentin and nancy are the only ones that are left Quentin has a dream during the day where he sees fred being chased by the parents 15 years ago in the past and questions his own dad, who is the school's counselor, who subsequently reveals that the families and the parents of the kids that had been bothered, is the word I'm going to use, that they instead hunted Fred down, trapped him in a building, and ended up burning him alive. 
Their insomnia causes Quentin and Nancy to have brief micronaps, which leaves them open to Freddy's attacks as Quentin and Nancy make their way to their childhood preschool to try to figure out the missing pieces of their past. On the way there, Nancy is attacked but manages to pull a piece of Freddy's sweater off of his body and into the real world, realizing that she can, to some extent, manipulate him the way that he does her in dreams. When they get to the preschool, the two of them realize that Freddy is hunting everyone down for telling about his abuse of them, which resulted in Fred being subsequently burned and killed. Quentin has been watching over Nancy during their plan to have Nancy fall asleep, lure Kruger to her, and have Quentin wake her up to pull Freddy into the real world to hopefully end everything. When Nancy gets a hold of him, she throws him on the ground while Quentin gets his attention long enough for her to take a nearby machete, cutting off his hand and then his throat. I mean... You say machete, it's the blade ripped off of a paper cutter. They did that in the faculty too, but machete just has more of a visual kick, don't you think? Yes, they pulled off the blade of a paper cutter that was in the bottom half of the priest. Which is one of the most divisive parts about this movie, and I'm going to go into in the end why I think they did this thing, and why all of the fans that are upset are correct, but they're upset at themselves because they don't realize that they're correct. Not thinking that the paper cutter slashing is good enough, before they leave, Nancy ends up burning the preschool to the ground using a nearby lamp of kerosene. After being looked at at a nearby hospital, Nancy and her mom Glenn get home to decompress, with the movie ending with Freddy appearing in a house mirror, killing Gwen and pulling her into the mirror while Nancy screams. Yay, movie's over. Now, is that like a film you've seen before? It might well be. I mean, really, and we're going to go into this in the what went wrong, but it's it's very much almost a shot-for-shot remake of the original Freddy Krueger. And every time somebody goes, why don't they make reboots that are more similar to the original material? Why do they always need to change things? This is the movie I'm going to always bring up as to why they change things, because when they don't change things, it's boring. So, a little bit on the numbers. Rating is R. Genre is supernatural slasher horror. Directed by Samuel Bayer, who is best known for Alpha Dog in 2006 and over 100 music videos. He's a very creative director. I mean, you see that in a lot of these shots. They're the very well do done. pop. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, this is very much a movie you watch for scenes, not necessarily a movie you watch for art. Uh, the producers are Michael Bay, which again is going to make a lot of sense and I'll go into. You know him most from being Michael Bay. Andrew Form, best known for A Quiet Place and The Purge series. And Brad Fuller, best known for A Quiet Place and The Purge series. The release date was April 30th, 2010, on a budget of $35 million. It had a U.S box office gross of 63.1 million dollars which means the movie made more than double its budget which means the movie is mildly successful financially it actually did pretty well internationally as well so as we get into newer movies the domestic gross matters less and the total world gross matters more so at some point you may see me flip-flop back between these titles for movies where it's important and the runtime is one hour and 36 minutes Rotten Tomatoes gives this movie a critical score of 15% and an audience score of 43%. IMDb gives it an aggregate score of 5.2. Now, to compare Ouch. that to the original, Rotten Tomatoes gives the original film a 94% on the critic review and 84% on the audience, and IMDb gives the original a 75 
So the original is a movie that is well-received and considered a masterpiece of the genre. And to be fair, it is written and directed by Wes Craven. You expect that. But it's one of the reasons why the remake, not so much, because it had big shoes it was trying to fill. The movie stars Jackie Earl Haley, who you would best know as Rorsak in The Watchmen, or George Noyce in Shutter Island. Rooney Mara as Nancy Holbrook, who is taking over... Heather Langenkamp's role as Nancy Thompson from the original. She is best known as Therese Bellevay in Carol in 2015, Elizabeth Salander in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo in 2011, and then there's Kyle Garner as Quentin Smith, who was Goat Winston in American Sniper, and Kurt Fletcher in Dear White People, and also played Beaver in Veronica Mars. Kate Cassidy is in this as Chris Fowles. She was Black Siren, I believe, in Arrow. And Kelly Presley in Black Christmas in 2006, a movie that we're not going to be reviewing for Reboots Month, but maybe next year. And then there's also Clancy Brown in the movie as well. Any movie with Clancy Brown in it automatically gets a thumbs up from me because it's Mm -hmm. Clancy Brown. By the way, Clancy Brown is proof that badasses can age well enough to hide in common society and then still, when they need to, be badasses. I would love to see him get a main action role, like... I want Clancy Brown to get a role written for Liam Neeson, but Liam Neeson was working on another project. Can you imagine Clancy Brown as Alex Cross in a proper make of that? Right? He would own that. The closest we've gotten, I think, is Detective Hank from Detroit Become Human. Right. But no, which I, he I nailed, would, by the way. Which I'm he biased. nailed. But I, I would love to see Clancy Brown, like... Now is the time for the Clancy Brown revival. Give him three or four big box office movies where you know Clancy Brown fanatics will go to see it and those movies will do really well and it'll pad his account and then he can retire. We are in prime Clancy Brown territory right now. Somebody needs to jump on this while we have a chance. Anyway, we're going to jump on Nightmare on Elm Street, unfortunately. So, decent stars, major production values, a good but cinematically fairly young director a more than decent budget for what the movie was supposed to be what went wrong it seems like a fallback and i don't mean for it to but this film had everything going for it but unfortunately had the title of a nightmare on elm street which means it was never not going to be compared to the 1984 original i agree if you released this movie as Kindergartener or Kindergarten Slayground or any other kind of campy name and you just changed Freddy Krueger to a gardener, this is that kind of movie that people really would have jumped for. But you're reaching for a very tough brass ring to grab when you're trying to duplicate a Wes Craven written and directed project. I mean, that's, even... that, that's not it... anything that I want to ever have to try to do in my career and to say nothing of the fact that first of all i'm i'm a fan of jackie earl haley i Mm -hmm. love him as an actor loved him as rorschach i think he nails anything that he's in he was always going to be compared to robert england there was no way around that it was going to happen i'm pretty sure he knew that going in so when you're making a movie like this typically you have one of three ways it can go well four if you count being awful which i do not think this is by the way I just, I'm going to say that before we get to ratings. I actually really like this movie. There's one of three ways that it can typically go. Either you reimagine the reboot shot for shot, updating it where necessary, but otherwise just trying to make a complete carbon copy. You 
change enough while keeping the spirit of the original so that people can see where it has a life of its own but still has the inspiration from the source material, or in the case of House of Wax, you keep it in name only and make a completely different but still amazing story that has barest references to the source material. In this case, they kind of went with two with sprinkles of one in it. I like what they did because I think it is the only way to get a good retelling of this story. I literally think they didn't have any other choice because you already had things working against you from the start. It was going to be compared to the original. The actors were going to be compared to each other. The way the storyline was going to be told. The visual effects, which again, in 1984, some of the stuff they pulled off was groundbreaking. Remember the blood fountain right oh great shit which which wasn't a new effect by the way it was just a new way to use a 30 year old effect but it was that moment where you're using something that no one uh, it it was the the upside down room okay you're just filming in an upside down room this is something that has been in cinema since what fucking singing in the rain like this is not a new material this is not a new idea the difference was utilizing the upside down room as the character because Mm -hmm. at the moment they're using the upside down room there's no one in the room so the only thing you're looking at is the room so instead of using the upside down room as setting they use it as persona and that was really what made it unique and then made the fountain of blood going up which was actually just buckets of red fluid being dumped through the roof onto the floor what made the whole thing work. It was fantastic. I will give this movie credit where it is due. And it's like you said, I think a lot of the director had a large part of it. The visual effects here and the visual impact of those effects are actually really, really good, especially for 2010, which technology had improved, but it's not where it is now. But the way they were able to combine Freddy Krueger's face was 85% prosthetics and 15% CGI. And you can tell it makes a difference. You can tell where the CGI is, kind of, but the fact that he actually works with the makeup as thick as it is to get his lines through it makes a huge amount of difference and i definitely think that was a artistic choice on the part of the director because you very easily could have cgi'd his entire character yeah and i think that even now like 10 years later i mean the cgi still holds up really really well one of the things that i thought was a bit of a detraction although i'm not sure if that was just me my personal preferences, or if they really did drag a little bit, but it's a 90-minute runtime, but it seemed like they took a very large part in showing the group of kids that were the targets of Fred's desires, is the word I'm going to use. It seemed like they really dragged out the character building, who they were, their relationships to each other, but they dragged them out in a way that didn't necessarily progress the plot. It more so felt like padding. I mean, I get that. I To me, I feel like one of the reasons why they were doing that was that was one of the newer elements in the story. Mm-hmm. Like, that was the thing that not everyone knew. So they tried okay. to whodunit and tried to, like, mini-movie the whodunit part into the first half of the movie. Mm-hmm. So it kind of a subplot and kind of a main plot and kind of padding like all at the same time. I, I definitely get where you're going. I don't think it's invalid to say that 
they could have tightened that up. I mean, personally, I kind of liked that part. For the record, I am a huge fan of the Nightmare on Elm Street series. He is my second favorite horror antagonist of the 80s and 90s. I have a lot of love for this franchise. In fact, the first horror movie that I actually remember seeing in theaters that I saw like actually in a theater like during its normal run was Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3 and I went with my aunt and uncle because they took me to the movie that was an R rating and I wouldn't have been able to go by myself and they're also horror fans and he like he was the cool uncle. He was the one that was like 19 or 20 at the time so he's that cool uncle that's only like five or six years older than you and so they took me to go see nightmare on elm street part three which was fucking fantastic it's like you know one of the best moments of my childhood so this this series means a lot to me however one of the problems in rebooting this on the first hand the first problem you have is michael bay and the reason why i say michael bay is a problem i actually adore michael bay as a filmmaker because he is a modern day exploitationist he takes a property and a genre and he figures out exactly what the audience wants from that property and from that genre and then gives them 150 percent of what they asked for and maybe tries to put in an interesting story around it or maybe not and just makes fucking money. You know, it's fine. I don't necessarily always like his takes on properties, but I agree with him that the take he puts on film is likely your median take if you were to ask 100 audience members of what they would like to see in X film. More than 50 of them are going to give you exactly what he winds up putting in the movie. So he is very good at doing modern day exploitation. This is a modern day slasher exploitation film. It's very Michael Bay. It's very by the numbers. It gives you exactly the scenes you want exactly the things you're looking for, exactly what you wanted out of Freddy Krueger. People argued for years, why is he only a killer? Why wasn't he also a pedophile? Because killing children is bad enough to make you a villain. You don't need to go farther than that. That was the original. Yeah, like, like killing kids isn't enough? That's not good enough for you? You don't get enough of a punch out of that? Okay. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you got to take him farther? Fine, we'll take him farther. So, Michael Bay took him farther and he even played with the subtext which you will often see film theorists use which was there's the possibility that freddy krueger was innocent in the original film and that's why there wasn't enough evidence but then a local town police officer and a parental group got together and they scapegoated the only person they could find and maybe he was really innocent the whole time and i liked that they played with that film theory Enough that you thought maybe they might have been going there in the end. And then it turns the corner and Michael Bay goes, no, slasher exploitation. Our villain is a villain and he's actually a child molester. And fuck you for trying to get more out of this movie. And fuck you for liking Freddy Krueger because you're not supposed to like the villain. So here you go. Here's a Freddy Krueger that's actually a villain and you shouldn't like. And he's doing all the things that villains should do. Murdering kids. Have at it. You genuinely think that Michael Bay, now we're talking, again, we're talking about Michael Bay. We know who Michael Bay is. We know the public perception of Michael Bay. You genuinely think that he had the psychology enough to actually put that in as a metaphorical subtextual reading of fuck you to the audience? Oh, yeah. Like he, you think that was intentional? He there did is that? a he metaphorical fuck you in almost every Michael Bay film, and he slides them in so nonchalantly 
that it's always just accidental reads. I might have to put that down as a potential sidecast idea because I would love to explore Six that. Six Degrees of Michael, Michael Bay, yes. I'm down because I honestly think, and it's one of those things that, you know, 20 years later, we can come back and look at this. I honestly think he is one of the most misunderstood filmmakers of our time. I'm not saying the best. I'm not saying the greatest. I'm saying people have a understanding of him as the boom, boom, pow, explosions and tits guy. When the reason why his movies are boom, boom, pow, explosions and tits is that's what the people that are going to buy tickets want out of the movie. If you watch his early career and watch his stuff that he did as a student filmmaker, it was very psychological. It was very in-depth. It was very, very meta kind of stuff. And mm -hmm. then when he gets a chance to make big budget movies, he just makes movies that make money hand over fist. So why is that? Well, because he's learned what will make money hand over fist. Like, I'm not saying that he's a great, if anything, he's the second coming of Roger fucking Corman. Like, I'm not saying that he's a great filmmaker. I'm saying he's a filmmaker that knows how to look at a property, come up with a budget for that property, and make that property always make money. But in that, there is an under, much like with Roger Corman, there is an understanding of your audience and an understanding of what they're going to movies for that decries a very high intellect and a very high level of understanding. And people with high intellect and high understanding can sneak shit in where other people will go, well, that had to be accidental. He's too much of a fucking dummy. He's just the boom, boom, pow guy, but he's not. And that's why it works. So yes, I totally think that was in there for a reason. I mean, this is a movie that you established from the start has a 25 year fan base. Okay. Mm -hmm. This is not an unknown property and you're going into this you know the fan base, you know what they want, you know all the film theories, you know everything they've talked about, about Freddy Krueger for literally a generation. How do you make that work? How do you make a new movie and how do you make it exciting to the people that want to see a new movie, yet also make it familiar to the people who want it to be familiar? Well, you follow a formula. So you follow the formula for the people that want it to be normal and you make it a mid naughties styled slasher psycho thriller for the next generation. And you play with, you know, the internet fans by twisting some of the biggest fan theories about the character and actually introducing them as subplots in the movie. It all works. What doesn't work is if you think about it this is almost exactly what he did with transformer the difference is the property he was using in transformers was something that you could show in a bright shiny way make it fancy and have people rally around and here it's the bad guy this is trying to do the transformers movie but only using decepticon okay. that wouldn't have worked nobody would have wanted that movie but here that's what he has to do you run into a big problem with the nightmare on elm street franchise more than any other slasher franchise in that oh, we discussed this a little bit in the past and I'll bring it up a lot in the future. One of the biggest problems with a lot of your 80 slasher franchises is they were never intended to be franchises. They were never intended to be more than one movie. They just got popular and people went, wait, we can make money doing this. We're going to make another movie. I mean, there was never supposed to be a fucking Jason Voorhees. Jason Voorhees was dead and buried before the first movie. You never see Jason Voorhees in the first movie because there was never supposed to be a Jason fucking Voorhees. What we understand as the antagonist of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise physically doesn't appear until the second one, visually doesn't appear until the third, and arguably psychologically doesn't appear until the fourth. So it was always supposed to be a, is this or is this not actually happening? Well, in the first movie, it was all, there wasn't supposed to be a supernatural 
character. There wasn't supposed to be a ghost. There wasn't supposed to be a, a, a dead zombie killer. It was all Pamela Voorhees. Spoilers. Then when they wanted to make the second one, they flipped it. Is it Pamela Voorhees? Did she not die? Is she back killing more people? Oh shit, it's Jason. And then the third one, they're like, well, I mean, we brought Jason back. We might as well just keep him at this point. <laughs> With the exception of Michael Myers, who pretty much was cut and dry in the first Halloween movie, but even still, they tried doing a Halloween movie without him because they wanted to try to move on past the killer and their audience said, fuck you, give us back, you know, our William Shatner mask. So they brought him back again. None of these killers were intended to be major franchise entities. They were in as an antagonist in a single movie and that was it. So the problem you run into with Freddy is Freddy's identity. If you ask any fan of Nightmare on Elm Street, and those who are listening to this podcast, I want you to play along with this game. This is going to be a fun game, I promise. Walk up to someone who's a fan of Nightmare on Elm Street, and you'll say, hey, can you describe Freddy Krueger to me? And I put a long enough pause in there for our audience to answer on their own. And what they just answered was, dude in a sweater with a fedora and a claw, and he's burned. Okay? You probably got three out of four. And I go, right, right, right. I get that. But who is... Freddy Krueger. And I put that pause in so that the audience could answer their own question. And now I want you to think about the answer and tell me which movie you first saw in the Freddy Krueger franchise. And the Freddy Krueger that's in that movie is what you just answered that question. Was he a pedophile? Was he a child killer? Was he a wish, a, a dreams master? Was he a villain in nightmares that were unrelated to the characters? Was he a revenge killer trying to kill the children of the people that murdered him? Was he a fictional character that started playing on people's fears in real life? Your identity of this character, it, it's very much the Doctor Who, my doctor syndrome. Your identity of Freddy Krueger is tied to the first movie you saw Freddy Krueger in. If you think he's a psycho killer, straightforward, you probably saw New Nightmare or the first movie first. If you think he's a representation of sexual trauma, you probably saw Freddy's Revenge first. If you think he's a supernatural killer who uses the realm of dreams as his plaything, you probably saw Dream Warriors first. You're your identity of this character is tied to the movie where you really dug him. The problem is, is that there are eight different Freddy fucking Krugers. Sometimes he's wisecracking. Sometimes he's snarky. Sometimes he's serious. But none of them all the time. So if you have six different Freddy Krugers and you're trying to reboot the franchise, which one do you go with? And you're guaranteed to piss off people that wanted the other ones. It's interesting that you bring that up because I actually think that that is where Jackie Earl, Earl Haley's depiction of Freddy Krueger actually went really, really well. In as much as his inspiration by Robert England, because he doesn't play it the same way that Robert England plays the character, not by any means. But he has the one-liners. He has the double character attitude. He has two one-liners. That's it. <laughs> but yeah, I agree. I agree with you. He has his moments of anger. He has his moments of. Dignance. He has his moments of silence and just letting that be his instrument of terror. Everything that Robert England played up because it was the 80s and Bombass is how he wanted to play the character, so Bombass is what you got, as well as being subdued in the later versions more subdued. In the later versions, Jackie O'Haley took all of that and put it into one performance. It's at various different times. It's at, you know, you may not expect it to be coming out at certain places, but he does all of them. I agree. Really well. I agree. 
And I think that that both is a testament to Samuel Bayer and Jackie Erhelly's ability and also where the film falls down. Ironically, I agree with you. I think he hits every version of Freddy Mm -hmm. in almost sequential order. One scene at a time. Yeah, actually. Yeah, again. How does that become a detriment? Because I only wanted the Dream Warrior. So I like two scenes, and the rest of the time (laughs) I don't like your fucking Freddy. So, ironically, this becomes the Freddy that nobody liked because he wasn't anybody's Freddy. He didn't give me Freddy from the first movie. He didn't didn't give me Freddy from the second. He didn't give me Freddy from the third. He didn't give me Freddy from the fourth. He didn't give me New Nightmare. He gave me a different character. And it's a character that embodies all of those characters. So, yes, I agree. This was the right call creatively. Mm-hmm. But as a fan service film, mm-hmm. who does that serve? Everyone, which ends up serving no one. Yeah, and there's your problem. So, well, I agree with you. Like, I loved Jackie Earhaley's performance as Freddy because it felt more real to me. Mm-hmm. This is closer to what I would imagine a vengeful child murderer, let alone child molester spirit, would look and feel like returning from the grave. As much as I always love the Dream Warriors, I have to admit, Dream Warriors is campy slapstick bullshit. And there is a place in horror for campy slapstick bullshit. But this was, they were trying to tell a much more serious, much more air quotes, adult story. So campy slapstick bullshit wouldn't have worked. So I really like the way they did him, but I don't think it served anyone's individual purpose and that that becomes the problem. Mm-hmm. You had also mentioned that the one the one twist that you didn't necessarily care for was them going all the way removing the ambiguity and saying, "Okay, yeah, he flat out did shit to these kids." Right. That Not was the, the choice force. I would have made. I can appreciate you choosing to make that choice as a filmmaker. That, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're going to make our villain, we're going to make our villain a Nazi. Okay, fine. You decided you needed to go the Nazi, not just Nazi sympathizer. Fine. Congratulations. You, you went full Nazi. You made him a child molester. All right. I don't know that it was necessary for this character. I mean, it, in the modern remake telling, maybe, but like, it just... It doesn't form him pretty well as far as his behavior later on. Yeah, and, and that's the part of it I liked was that When you're talking about someone who is, you know, a pedophile, you're talking about someone who needs to live a double life and who is inherently manipulative of the world around them at all times. That fits for someone who attacks you through your dreams. That fits for the kind of character they were telling. There's a reason why people always wondered, was he or wasn't he? And it's because all, you know, the pattern works. So, I mean, it's good storytelling there. Again, I think if you wanted to keep fans of the original, because as much as Freddy Krueger is the antagonist, he's the reason why you go to see Nightmare on Elm Street. Not a lot of people, I think, really want to go, yay, I want to go watch my favorite pedophile on film. You want your audience to come and pay money on this, which means your audience needs to identify with your principal character. Your principal character is a pedophile. You are trying to convince your audience to identify with a pedophile. You're going to have a bad time. (laughs) And you also mentioned that there were two twists they put in that were different from the first film that you actually did appreciate. And I don't remember what those were. Okay. One of the ones that they put in was the whole, like the whole idea of the secret room. And, Mm -hmm. you know. Underneath the the playground, underneath the preschool where they, he took them down there, that kind of thing. Right. As opposed to the boiler room, like it it was a change in that the place where he was murdered wasn't his inner sanctum this time. 
it uh-huh. plays again with the idea that he was hunted down and that there was vigilante justice and that's part of the reason why his spirit can't rest so they still played with the whole he was wronged while going okay yeah he was definitely wronged he's a wronged fucking nazi but he was still wronged but he's still a fucking nazi we're going to remind you of that yeah right after we get done showing you that he was wronged and he was burned alive by a bunch of by a bunch of parents he's going to we're going to remind you he molested their children like we're not going to give you a chance to really like this character we don't want you to really like this character he's the bad guy you shouldn't really like this character but that's an entirely other different podcast conversation right so I liked that they did that. I also liked that they I liked that they played a little bit more with parent versus child conversation. In the first movie, you know that Nancy's parents know more than they're letting on and that she's got to go through all of these hoops to try to find any information about what's happening before her mother finally admits that they murdered Freddy Krueger. But we did it for your own good, honey, so that you could be safe. Yeah, Very- we did so you could have a normal life and not have these repressed-ass memories. And- right, right. Very 80s way of of addressing that. A very 2010s way of addressing that is, like, in the first conversation, yes, the parents are lying, but there's a certain level of respect, child to parent, which is why you lied to me, hurt, because I trusted you, and I trusted you to take care of me and always tell me the truth. And they as well, we did take care of you. We just had to take care of you by not telling you the truth. But there's like this informing from a perception of respect. A generation later, you're telling that same story, but the parents aren't respecting the children. The children aren't respecting the parents. There is no informed communication between each other. She finds out everything she finds out basically by searching online, which is to say not talking to a member of the older generation and finding the information the way you did in the first one, but by finding it through her own peers who posted the information in places where her peer group would look for information. And then when she confronts her mother on it, her mother admits to the lie and then fucking lies again. By omission. She doesn't tell the whole story. No, not by omission. And we never found him. And he got away. And that's why we didn't want to tell you, honey, because we didn't want you to know he was still out there. That's not omission. That's a straight-up fucking lie. She murdered a man. She knows she murdered a man. She knows where the man was murdered. And she says he got away. That's fucking lying. So there's never any level of respect shown at all. Parent to child, child to parent. One of the things that I think really drives that point home as well is that even after people are dying, friends in their peer group are dying in very grotesque ways, she's still, that's still not enough for her to say, okay, we fucked up, this is what happened, but even if this is what happened, there's still no way that this could be the case because the dude's dead. Like, there's still not, death is not enough to get her to respect her daughter enough to tell her the truth. Exactly. And I'm not saying that this film was made as social commentary. It absolutely fucking was not. I'm not saying this storyline was put in as a social commentary, even though horror often incurs social commentary within it. I'm not saying that this was done specifically for that reason. I'm just saying... Even 10 years later, isn't that a really interesting social commentary that the entire reason why a pedophilic murderer is able to continuing murdering kids is on the good people's side, on the protagonist's side? Nobody's listening to anybody 
Nobody's trusting anybody. Nobody has faith in any fucking body. She has her one best friend, who, by the way, at the start of the movie, wasn't, and they weren't talking anymore, and they were on the outs, and the only reason they're together is they both realized that they were having the same nightmare, so now I can trust you because I know you know the thing that I know. So they found commonality through the killer, and that's the only reason why those two are talking, and they're the only two talking. This movie is about an entire town that if it wasn't for two people accidentally describing a dream at the same time to one another after a friend died shortly after describing the same dream to one of them, everyone dies. Now, that social commentary aspect that you mentioned, which was intentionally unintentional, let's say. Okay. And the reason I'm asking that is because do you also think that that is something that on the part of the director and producer, Michael Bay in this case, is that the sort of psychological subtext that he would have put into his films that people would not have noticed? Possibly. Maybe. Okay. It's not one that he has done before, but he also hasn't had this palette to hide a brushstroke in before. It's not a tool that he has used, but he has used similar tools when they were appropriate for the media that he was using. So I don't want to say that this was a thing, but I can't tell you absolutely for certain that it wasn't. Could have been. I mean, that, I mean, it definitely does make sense when you're describing it that way. Also, you had mentioned that you wanted to make a point about the paper cutter being used as a weapon. Ah, yes. Okay, so the paper cutter, the paper cutter, the paper cutter. When this movie came out, people fucking bitch to high hell about the ending of this movie and it's the reason why most of the audience that went to see it gave it a negative score because they're like fuck you freddy krueger cannot be killed by a fucking paper cutter that is bullshit and we're out of here you're right you're absolutely right freddy krueger can't be killed by a paper cutter freddy krueger toys with his food freddy krueger in the original franchise constantly let his victims think they escaped just so that he could keep hunting them so that they would eventually realize there was no escape and become demoralized, and that's when he kills them. Freddy Krueger plays with his food. Yes, that sounds like another horror movie villain we could mention. Yeah, so Freddy Krueger, you're absolutely right, wasn't killed by a paper cutter. And you know he wasn't, because he showed up after they killed him with a paper cutter. So I don't know why you're upset. He was never going to die to a paper cutter. He's also never going to die to being burned. You know why? They already did that. Flame is now his domain, not yours. So the two ways they tried to kill him in this movie were never going to work. You're absolutely right. They were never going to work. That's why he's still alive. Because you don't use the way that's actually going to work in the first movie because you want to make a sequel or a threequel or a twelvequel. You want to keep making money off this franchise. That's why you rebooted it. So you kill him in a way which cinematically works for the two-hour story you're telling but doesn't work for the longevity of the character. They killed him with a sharp object that was easily believable to be in a preschool. It ties up the book nicely, it finishes the story, and you go, but that's a bullshit way that Freddy Krueger can die. That shouldn't kill him. You're right, and it didn't. It's why I jumped out of a mirror. It's why they were ready to make a next one, and nobody caught it, and everybody bitched about the movie, so they didn't make any more. Kind of would have liked to have seen Jackie Earl Haley get four, five, six Freddy Krueger movies. I would like to have seen where they went with this character. At the same time, I'm kind of glad that Jackie Earl Haley didn't get four, five, or six Freddy Krueger movies because I want to see what Jackie Earl Haley can do with his career outside of Freddy Krueger because we know what Freddy Krueger did to Robert Englund's career. Well, on that note, who would like this movie? Who would like this movie? If you're a big fan of Jackie Earl Haley, I think you're really going to enjoy this movie. 
Um, if you're a fan of Rooney Mara or Kyle Garner, I mean, I think that's a much smaller audience, but if you're a, a good fan of either of those two talents, you're going to enjoy this movie. Uh, I can't say fans of Samuel Bayer because, I mean, he doesn't have a lot of directing movies. I doubt there's a huge amount of Samuel Bayer fans. If you are interested in the inner workings of the mind of Michael Bay, maybe. If you are a fan of A Quiet Place or The Purge series and want to see a 80s horror redone in that vein, this is a good one for you. This movie, I think, would have far more of an appeal and a far more... A larger fraction of the audience would enjoy it if it was called anything but Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. Change a few details and it would have been a slasher classic. Like, I think they would have gotten somewhere with this. I think the fact that they put the... It, I hate calling it a burden because I don't, I, I don't think it is. I say burden in the sense of, like, living up to preconceived expectations that have spent, at this point, 50 years aging in a barrel of fan theories and commentary and the way you felt at the time you saw it when you were a teen or a tween or in your early 20s the first time and it was new and it was fresh and it was exciting and now you have to basically try to recreate that for a 2010s audience after all of that stuff has been passe for lack of a better word for three decades it's not gonna happen right if you want to see what the movie would look like if freddy krueger never came out in the 80s and suddenly came out as a brand new property today and you want to see what that property would look like what that would feel like this is a good movie for you in almost every other respects i don't know that i can recommend this movie not because the movie itself is bad i think the movie is great but i think whatever expectations you bring into this movie and those expectations are the reason you want to watch this movie i think whatever those expectations are will be unfulfilled and you're not going to enjoy it it's for me as a cinemaphile as a fan of this franchise as someone that likes deep diving into movies i'm almost meta meted this movie watching the movie but also having the inner dialogue of, oh, they're doing this because in 1997, there was this big thing about Freddy Krueger and the lost reels, and that's what this is referencing. There's a lot done in this movie to try to satisfy all of the possible fans in just this scene, in just that scene. Give everyone a taste of what they wanted, but not give anyone at all the movie they wanted. And I think that's, I just think that's where this falls down. This is going to be interesting to score because I think we're going to have very different scores for almost identical reasons. It's going to be interesting, right? I uh, also I also want to wait to see because I think this movie is going to do something that we haven't done yet this month, and that's going to be exciting. Okay. Anyway, at DWTF, we use a rather unique scoring system, lovingly known as the DWTF meter. On the DWTF meter, every film scores a one because, let's face it, you shouldn't watch any of these films. However, the important thing is one out of what? A one out of one is a lost classic that everyone needs to see and may or may not have been released in 2005. A one out of two movie is a great film, which is mildly flawed, all the way down to a one in ten film, which is a movie that absolutely nobody should ever, ever see. Ever, 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 ever and we had to talk about it so you know we're gonna bitch in addition this month we are review we have to give a score for this movie a score for the movie that it rebooted and mm -hmm. a score for how well we think this film lived up to the original property would you like to go first or would you like to go second mm, i'm gonna go ahead and go first i have a okay. tendency to do that but i also want to hear your dissections because i just i think after i get done dissecting it you're just you're gonna have a lot to say so i want to give you more floor time oh boy 
All right, go for it. So, and this is part of the reason that I think our scores are going to be different for the same reason. I didn't even exist in 1984, let alone see this movie anywhere near its target audience when it was originally released. So I don't have any of that kind of connection in that time period, in that era, to any of these films. Actually, any of the ones that we've really talked about, but specifically this one. While I didn't see it at the time... The 2010 remake is closer to when I would have started getting an interest in horror. Mm, let's see, 24, 25. Yeah, that sounds about right. Late bloomer. Yeah, I know. Sorry. There's a lot that I like about the original. Practical effects being chief among them, as well as Robert England's performance. He is a... He's just a classic. That's all I, all the way you could describe the guy. He, he is himself a classic. Yes. There's a part of me that, in the same way that I did for House of Wax, feels like comparing the two isn't necessarily fair, but for a different reason. I'm not looking at it through the lens of somebody who has an attachment to these films, so I can't really compare the one to the other because I relate to one more than the other. So with that being said... Scoring the first movie, The Nightmare on Elm Street 1984, just by itself. Practical effects are great, story was great, acting was decent, and who doesn't love 80s horror? I mean, it brought us Johnny Depp, so, you know, there is That's very true. Poor Kyle Garner had to try and be Johnny fucking Depp. Good luck. That is an awful tough act to follow, my goodness. Jackie Earl Haley had to be Robert Englund? Sure. But Kyle Garner had to be Johnny Depp. (laughs) Fuck. The game was rigged from the start. It really was. Original, solid film, but I've seen it once all the way through, and that was years ago. And since then, I've never had the inspiration to see it again. The original, I'm going to give a one out of six. Solid film. I absolutely think you should see it, if nothing but for just sheer cultural relevance to say nothing of everything else. But I never felt compelled to rewatch it. I never felt like I knew the story. I knew where all the cultural references came from. That was was all I really needed from it. Nightmare on Elm Street 2010. Masterpiece? Not at all. Flawed? Definitely. However, what was updated and what was changed and what was altered in the name of making a reboot, quote-unquote, I think was the best they could have made it for the story that they had. In the time frame that they had, following the massive cultural juggernaut they were trying to follow. For that reason, and especially after hearing you talk about it the way that you have, this is something that I would watch again. This crosses into one out of three territory. I would watch this again, I would observe it again, I would enjoy it again, and I was extremely surprised by how thoroughly I enjoyed it the first time. This is something I would watch again. This is something that I probably am going to watch again. That falls into my one out of three criteria. And here's where I know the dissension is coming and I can't wait to hear it. Oh boy. And I say that, I say that lovingly. I mean dissension and just that we disagree. I, I, I have been told by a number of our listeners that the thing they like most is when we disagree about on a movie and then have to try to justify to each other why we're both right. So... Let's go. Uh, Strap in, folks. Comparing 2010 to 1984. Well, 1984 was an Aurelian. Oh, wait, no, that's something else. Original is a classic. We'll take nothing away from it. Practical effects were amazing. With what they had, they crafted a, ma- a classic of horror. 2010, with a few shortcomings, I believe did very close to the same thing with what they had, with the misfortune of having the title attached to it that they did. In saying that, I'm looking at the original and I'm looking at the remake, trying to compare the two, which again, you could argue is not entirely fair, but I think it's fairer than House of Wax was, that's for damn sure. True. This is as close as they could have made it while still updating it for the 30 years later that needed to pass for it to be made. I'm comparing the reboot to the original, taking into account 
the things that are different and the things that are that work and don't work. And I'm going to give it a one out of two. Okay. I think this is as close as they could have gotten to a faithful recreation with what they had to work with while still shouldering the burden of gigantic expectations. I don't don't, don't disagree with any of that. All right. So my take on Nightmare on Elm Street 1984 is a very unpopular take. Nightmare on Elm Street 1984 is a good horror movie, but it's a good horror movie with three or four mind-blowing scenes it is however not a great movie nightmare on elm street the west craven classic taken by itself is a fairly dandered supernatural psycho thriller for its era it became something more as the franchise went along as robert Englund developed the identity of freddy krueger and as more people built on the mystique of a character that Wes craven created but west craven's creation wasn't welcome to the big time like that wasn't the character that wasn't what he built he didn't invent psycho killer beetlejuice and that's what freddy krueger became over time was psycho killer beetlejuice the original movie uh, i give a one out of five it's Sure, that is very fair. It's that okay. is absolutely fair. It, it's it's not a ninety percent movie like Rotten Tomatoes has it. It's okay. It's passable. It's watchable. It's enjoyable. If you haven't ever seen it, you probably should. Do you need to own it? No. Do, do you need to watch it regularly? No. Is it going to change your life? No. I give the original a one out of five. It's 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 there at this point. It's old and tired, and it's nostalgic schlock. And if you really want to watch a Wes Craven movie, I got better ones for you. If you want to watch slasher killers, I got better ones for you. Like I can give you better ones for anything. Even if you want to watch a Freddy fucking Krueger movie, I can give you better ones. Like it's not even <laughs> the best movie in its own franchise. So it's one out of five. That rant over. <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street 2010. Standalone, kindergartner, you know, kindergarten sleigh time. The, the movie that does not use the Freddy Krueger name in any way. I think is a very solid film. I think as a standalone, it really works. I think it's just passes into mildly rewatchable. I don't think it's going to be a movie you're ever going to quote, but it does a good job of doing what it's supposed to do. And for that, I give it a one out of four. So we have an overall score for Nightmare on Elm Street, one out of three and a half. You know, it's no Velocipaster or <laughs> Killer Clowns from Outer Space, but, you know, very few <laughs> things are. <clears throat> Nightmare on Elm Street, 1984 to 2010. I'm going to preface this by saying Nightmare on Elm Street franchise to 2010. If you are trying to remake the franchise, the entire identity of the franchise in a rebooted film, I think that job they did a one out of six because I think that most people don't think of Freddy Krueger as Freddy Krueger from Nightmare on Elm Street. I think they think of Freddy Krueger as Nightmare on Elm Street from three, four, five, six. I don't think they think of Nightmare on Elm Street one or two. I know nobody thinks of Nightmare on Elm Street two. Um, <laughs> that movie is such a bubble. Holy shit. That, that's an entirely different episode that we have to discuss at some point. Um, as a rework of the original Nightmare on Elm Street, the original concept, Wes Craven's original identity. I'm going to give it a one out of three for relatability and faithfulness to the original property. And it's only not a one out of two because, in my opinion, they went for that low-hanging fruit of, we'll make him a pedophile instead of just the murderer. And that, to me, it's tired it's a hat on a hat, and 
it made the movie less than it needed to be. If you had told a movie about a gardener at a play school who invites kids to his secret room and has playtime with the kids as a way of toying with them before he murders them because he's playing with his food, but in a predatory way rather than a sexually predatorial way, I give this a one out of two. But because you felt the need to put a hat on a hat, because you felt the need to go full Nazi, I'm going to dock you a point and you're a one out of three. The original didn't go there. You didn't need to go there to tell the same story. The loss of a child is still just as psychologically scarring today as it was in 1984. I think... Any parent will tell you the loss of a child is enough of a terror that you can keep it right there and you don't have to put the hat on the hat. One out of three. I wish you would have let me give you a one out of two. I know some people are going to go, but that was one of the original ideas that has been discussed in the property before. Yeah, I get it. You know what? Make your own podcast and give it a higher score. That's my answer to you because this one is my opinion and in my opinion, they didn't have to do it. So there we go. Um, I'm stunned right now because that is nowhere close to what i expected i should have said okay so let's compare this to dream warriors and see what happens to one out of nine fuck that (laughs) you'll notice they'll never reboot dream warriors no 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 you can't that movie aside from the fact that half of the freddy krueger lines that are still quoted today came from that movie aside (laughs) from the fact that that was nancy's return to the property so that was heather langenkamp coming back as the fucking queen she was back into the franchise dream warriors is where nightmare on elm street starts for most people if they had tried to reboot dream warriors it would have been a completely different movie than this if they had tried to reboot dream warriors it would have been power rangers the horror movie because that's what dream warrior was dream warriors was power rangers a decade before power rangers five kids who use a device in this case a chemical device to go into an altered reality where they have superpowers and their superpowers are unique to their identity. Yeah, it would be a fucking Power Rangers movie. I'd be all over it. I'd love it. Somebody somebody greenlight that shit. Give it to Michael Bay. He can put fucking explosions in that one. It'll be great. I mean, I'd be fine with it. This is nowhere near that. But it wasn't supposed to be. This was supposed to be the super serious child murderer movie that the original Nightmare on Elm Street was. That's what they remade. They did a good job with it. Is what it is. Yeah, I, again, I expected to have completely differing opinions, but uh, we can't give the audience what they want now. We gotta disagree on something. (laughs) Ironically, this time we did the opposite. We had the same opinion for different reasons. Does that count? There's a difference. That counts. There's enough of a difference. You guys will get behind it, right? Let us know in the comments. (laughs) Oh, so that is, that is the reboot month that was Nightmare on Elm Street. Right? This was a good one. I like this one. And we didn't have to spend two hours on setup before we started talking about it. Right? That's helpful. So anyway, we would like to thank our patrons, uh, in this case, Tracy Smith and Jessica Sadie Thompson for their support. Without the support of our patrons, we would not be able to continue this podcast because some of these movies we actually have to pay to watch. In this case, I had one of these movies already in my collection. The other one I did not, but fortunately it was available for free. But this is really just front loading for the fact that next week, we're going to have to watch 847 movies. So, Tracy Smith, Jessica Sadie Thompson, thank you very much for your support. If you would like to support us on Patreon, 
If you would like to be able to help select what movies we watch any given month, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash don't watch this film for even as low as $1. You can join the Patreon and you can be part of the Patreon poll to determine what movie we will watch next month. So there we go. I'm just going to shut up and let Tia move on to the next spot. <laughs> Again, thank you so much to our patrons. Don't I do great <laughs> outros? Wasn't that amazing? That sucked. Keep going. We appreciate your support, but we also know not everyone can donate financially. We understand, I promise. Even Adam, who's over there, just in a corner. We'll get back to him, I promise. If you don't have a dollar to spare, but you do have social media, we have a fairly active online presence on Twitter at Don't Watch This F. We discuss the patron polls that are currently up for the given month for future movies. We talk about what's new and happening in the world of horror. So if you have social media, but you don't have a dollar, a like, a comment, a retweet, a follow, any of that boosts engagement, gets more ears on the podcast, which ultimately helps us out in the long term. Thank you so much for any support that you can manage to give us. We appreciate it. You are the reason we do this and we love you for it. And next week we have to watch at least uh, four. Yeah, we have to watch at least four because thanks to you guys, and also our people on Twitter, decided that the next film we're talking about got rebooted three damn times. Yeah, well, we couldn't decide if it was one or two or three or every fucking movie in the franchise. So I decided, without thinking about the ramifications of that, of going to Twitter and putting up a Twitter poll and a conversation about how many times was this franchise rebooted. And everybody was like, no, no, this was pretty, like, it was pretty definitive that it came back, this has been rebooted three times. So... That means we're going to talk about the three movies that are most likely the movies that you think are the actual reboot and why they're different. The good news is the synopsis is almost identical all the way through for all of them. So Tia's job is going to be easy. And then the discussion afterwards hopefully won't last an hour and a half. It's said hopefully. That's what we thought about the previous film. I mean, there are no promises, only hopes. Just remember, rebellions are built on hope. Apparently, multi-billion dollar franchises are not built on hope because nobody likes the hope. But that's okay. If you have any questions or want to send us any kind of email, our email address is dwtfmailbag at gmail.com. Feel free to send your hopes, your fears, your dreams, your questions, and maybe we'll be, if we got enough of them, we'll even answer them to collectively on a future podcast. And in the meantime, uh, I have watched Nightmare on Elm Street, and I've watched Nightmare on Elm Street, and I have been W. Adam Clark. Mm. And my name is Tia, and until you hear from us again to discuss the last film in oh, Reboot you, Month. Because the last film in Reboot Month, oh my god, like, uh, it, I mean, okay. I'm kind of glad we did them in this cockamamie order that we did and broke the format because, it, let's face it, if there's a movie you need to discuss as arguably the most quintessential and quintessentially rebooted horror movie in all of horrordom. This is it. Next week's podcast, it's the one, it's the king, and it deserved <laughs> to go on dead last. So. Until you hear from us to find out what that film is, I have been Tia. Don't watch